This week, Bonton files free fall chapter 11. A lot of capital market activity across the energy sector, plus a look at large credits around the world. Steinhoff, Seadrill, and Venezuela. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Nick Lichtenberg, filling in for Catherine Doherty this week from Reorg's offices in New York City. It's Sunday, February 11th. Each episode, we will feature a look back at highlights and top stories from the week, as well as a preview of what's to come in the week ahead, followed by a deep dive analysis on issues and companies in the distressed and high yield space. This week, our deep dive segment will focus on the European and emerging markets. For this week's recap, we'll go over the Chapter 11 filings for both Bonton and Ascent Resources Marcellus. We will also catch you up on all the doings in Puerto Rico and all the activity in court and in the capital that will affect the island territory. And as always, our senior reporter Jim Holloway in Houston is on top of what's happening in oil and gas. Jim, you have developments both onshore and offshore this week, right? Yeah, thank you, Nick, and greetings, y'all. And yes, there are a couple of interesting cases down here below to Mason-Dixon, one onshore, one offshore, and both involving the third generation of families in the business. First up, Jones Energy, headquartered in Austin and headed up by CEO Johnny Jones, whose granddaddy got his start in an oil patch in 1923 with the Marlin Oil Company of Ponca City, Oklahoma, which at the time was thought to control 10% of the world's oil supply. As we've reported, Jones went big in the merge. It's an up-and-coming development between the scoop and the stack in Oklahoma with a big purchase from Aubrey McClendon's AEP back in 2016. Now, of course, delineation requires cash on the barrel head, and that's been a bit of an issue with Jones, which has about $700 million in debt. Now, Monday, they announced plans to print a $450 million five-year non-call to first lien notes. What made it interesting is that the collateral was not the merge, but a pledge of equity in the merge. The plan is to drop that asset to an unrestricted subsidiary. Well, some holders of the unsecureds, including Avenue, White Box, and Brookfield, took what I guess you'd call a dim view of this and brought in Davis Polk to represent them. They hold a majority of Jones's 2022s and 2023 notes. The Jones first liens had price talk at 10%. That's a 9.5 coupon and two points of OID and were priced on Friday. But as of this moment, I don't see that they have. And for our offshore situation, let's look over to Louisiana, where, as my friend and colleague Harvard Zhang reported, Harvey Gulf has struck a deal with creditors for a prepack, under which lenders will swap their $1.2 billion of bank debt into $350 million of five-year take-back paper, paying at LIBOR plus 600 and 97% of the equity. Management will get 3% of the new equity, management in this case being Mr. Shane Guidry, whose granddaddy Numa, an oysterman out of Galliano, Louisiana, started the business. Louisiana politics are nothing if not entertaining, more fun than Bassmasters even, and Louisiana personalities tend to run larger than life, and the Guidry family scores high on both counts there in the Pelican State. My grandma's a Cajun out of Morgan City, so it's okay for me to say that. Now, Shane served as a, reserve, as a reserve deputy with the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office, and he and his son Ashton were featured in an episode of Mega RV Countdown on the Travel Channel, showing off their over-the-top recreational vehicles. Shane's is named the Mac Daddy and features seven televisions, Brazilian wood cabinetry, and a custom galley with a built-in coffee maker. Laissez les bon temps brûlés, as they say there on the bayou, let the good times roll, literally. Back to you, Nick. 
Thanks, Jim. Well, back up north here, last week ended with a bang. In Minnesota, the Philadelphia Eagles were celebrating their first ever Super Bowl win, although not their first NFL championship. And on the same night, in Delaware, Bonton, the retailer based right down Route 30 from Philly in York, Pennsylvania, filed for bankruptcy. A department store chain that traces its first store back to 1854, Bonton's filing was a freefall, without a restructuring support agreement or a plan of reorganization in place. The chain lined up $725 million in dip financing provided by lenders under its pre-petition ABL facility that requires it to find either a third-party sponsor for a standalone restructuring, a sale of the company under Section 363, or if both of those fail, a, quote, orderly liquidation. Ahead of Tuesday's first-day hearing, an ad hoc group holding $223 million of Bonton's second lien notes requested a, quote, immediate liquidation. But Judge Mary Walrath granted most of the first-day relief, saying that she, quote, must defer to the debtor's business judgment rather than the note holders. Delaware was the venue for another bankruptcy filing on Tuesday, as Ascent Resources Marcellus Holdings and two affiliates filed a prepackaged plan of reorganization that has the support of 78% of first lien term loan holders and 79% of second lien term loan holders. The firm, with over a billion dollars in pre-petition debt, is focused on the Marcellus Shale of the Appalachian Basin, not far from York, Pennsylvania. The E&P was one of several entities founded under the umbrella of Aubrey McClendon's American Energy Partners in 2013, after the legendary pioneer of shale drilling in Oklahoma was ousted from Chesapeake Energy. Parent entity, Ascent Resources LLC, is not a debtor, nor are any of the Ascent entities that operate outside the Marcellus. Although all the Ascent entities operate in the Appalachian Basin of the Northeast, they are still headquartered in McClendon's hometown of Oklahoma City. McClendon had stepped aside as American Energy Partners CEO in 2015, and he died in a fiery car crash a year later. Ascent Resources Marcellus attributed the bankruptcy filing to the decline of natural gas and natural gas liquids prices, and the plan contemplates a reorganization in which first and second lien term lenders will convert their debt to equity. However, the plan also provides for a toggle to a sale process if the debtors consummate a sale by the effective date. Ascent Resources Marcellus is targeting a speedy bankruptcy, expecting to emerge by the end of March. In recent weeks in Puerto Rico, Reorg has covered Governor Ricardo Rosselló's submission of revised fiscal plans for the Commonwealth, as well as its Electric Power Authority and its Sewer Authority. Bond insurer Assured Guarantee had called them, quote, fiscally irresponsible, and the ad hoc group of GEO bondholders called for, quote, more transparency. This Monday, the PROMESA Oversight Board issued violation notices for all three plans and ordered revisions to be delivered within a week. Governor Rosselló said on Tuesday that discussions with the Oversight Board were, quote, very productive. On Friday, soon after President Trump signed a budget act that assigns $6.8 billion to Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Oversight Board received objections from several parties concerning the Board's motion to authorize the Electric Power Authority to obtain $1.3 billion in post-petition financing. Our top red stories of the week were, number one, the case summary for Bonton's freefall filing. 
Number two, the breaking news that the PROMESA board issued fiscal plan violation letters for the Commonwealth and its electric power and sewer authorities. And number three, our summary of Senvio's VP of Corporate Strategies first day declaration. And now I'll pass it back over to Jim for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Jim? Thanks, Nick. And uh, yes, indeed, congratulations to Philadelphia for uh, for winning the uh, football game. Uh, Philadelphia fans, I reckon y'all are real proud of yourselves. Bless your hearts. Anyways, the usual assortment of in-court and out-in-court developments to monitor this week. Make sure you look at our weekly calendar, which goes out first thing Monday mornings. And on Monday, February 12th, in the Puerto Rico cases, revised fiscal plans are due from the Commonwealth and the Electric and Water Authorities after PROMESA this past week requested various revisions, which included the calling for a freeze of pension plans and more specific analysis of 30-year debt sustainability projections. Tuesday, February 13th, the long-running Brightburn cases might run even longer as Judge Bernstein will hold a hearing on the Equity Committee's motion to reopen the evidentiary record for confirmation. The committee is seeking to introduce evidence of a $1.8 billion stalking horse bid from Lime Rock Partners, a private equity shop with offices here in Houston and also in Connecticut. The Lime Rock offer expires on Wednesday, February 14th. As of this past Thursday, Lime Rock said it had not heard a peep out of the Brightburn debt holders or stakeholders. Wednesday also brings a mediation motion in the Pacific drilling cases as what looks to be a valuation fight looms between Quantum Pacific and the creditors. At issue is the timing of recovery in deep water. It's worth noting, I think, that Hornbeck Offshore last week said the conditions for recovery are beginning to gel, while also warning of ongoing overcapacity and a dearth of trained and experienced personnel. A bit of the same dynamic we saw in the Permian last year and, and earlier this year. Thursday, February 15th, the forbearance period for Field Woods, first lien last out and second lien term loans, expires. Field Woods and EMP on the continental shelf of the Gulf of Mexico, and debt burden aside, the recent increase in Louisiana light suites positive for the company. We'll also be looking for coupon payments from First Energy Solutions on its 2021 and 2039 senior notes, GNC on its 2020 senior converts, and Claire Stores on three term loans. And on the earnings front, Avon reports its fourth quarter, followed by an earnings call. And on Friday, February 16th, the exchange offer and consent solicitation for iHeartMedia's notes and term loans, initially launched in April of last year, is scheduled to expire at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. On Friday, the company filed an 8K noting discussions with term loan D&E lenders with a proposal coalescing around $5.55 billion in new debt to term loans and PGNs. And that's all from me in Houston. And if the good Lord's will and the creek don't rise, we'll see you all next week. Thanks again, Jim. We'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Next, we turn to Mark Fisher, Director of U.S. Credit Research, will be bringing us around the world with a look at the large international credits Steinhoff, Cedril, and Venezuela. Handing it over to you, Mark. Thank you. So I'm here today with Kyle Owusu. Kyle is a distressed debt analyst, senior distressed debt analyst. He started with us in the US, then went to Europe and helped build up that product, and then came back and is now working on Latin America and emerging markets. So Kyle could give us a great global perspective. Thanks, Kyle, for joining us. 
Thank you, Mark. Yeah, there's three situations that have been keeping us active around the globe. One being Venezuela sovereign, you know, well well known sort of sovereign credit situation. Another Steinhoff, which is a global retailer, and Seadrill, uh, which is an offshore uh, drilling company. Uh, great, thanks. So I'm going to go a little bit out of order, starting with Steinhoff. Let's uh, jump right into that situation. For a little bit of background, the company has a little over $10 billion in debt. Uh, it's a large global retailer, and uh, late last year was accused of fraud. Now, there's always been some suspicion that there's been some funny business going on uh, there, but then an article came out um, accusing the company of fraud, and the company now has PwC in there trying to get to the bottom of the situation and restate financials. So it's a big situation. A lot of people are interested in it, a lot of funds, a lot of different advisors, which we'll go into uh, shortly. But the first thing I wanted to explore with you, fraud aside, at the end of the day, this is a retailer. So can you tell us why we should be looking at this company? Why um, is this retailer different than others and won't suffer the same fate of uh, a, a lot of the other retailers that we've come to know at, uh, at Reorg Research? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when when people hear distressed retail, um, their minds automatically go to the potential threat from from Amazon and and some of the other well known e commerce players. I think what makes this a little interesting relative to some of the other retail situations is is it, it is a bit more defensive. You know, you have you have a, a furniture retailer that's integrated and and has a lot of presence globally, and so I think that there is an argument out there that the furniture companies are a little more isolated from the threats of e-commerce, at least for now, than, than say some of the, the the other retailers, whether it be apparel or books or music. I saw one stat that said that the market share of the top 500 e-commerce retailers in 2016 for mattresses is only roughly 5%. So still a very new um, new space for, for some of the e-commerce players. And then also you have the emerging markets dynamic. And so there is an argument to be made that while you could have a lot of competition in developed markets with regards to mattresses in emerging markets, it's a little less saturated. And then the other potential uh, argument to be made that this is a bit more defensive is the, the discount businesses. So they have a very large discount presence in the UK through their Poundland business. And there's an argument to be made that, especially in an environment where consumers are a bit more co- cost conscious, or actually I should say a lot more cost conscious, discounters will not suffer some of the same fate as some of the more traditional retailers. And so that's at least a, a way of that some people are distinguishing Steinhoff from some of the other more popular distressed retail situations. Thanks. And you could actually see it, I guess, in the numbers too, or at least the ones hopefully we could rely upon, where there are certain segments that, that are actually growing. Um, here, for instance, uh, you know some of the businesses that they have in South Africa. The one thing though that that's particularly surprising um, to me is the cash number. You know, you say that cash uh, at the end of last fiscal year, the end of March um, 17, was a little over three billion. But now the company is out there searching for has a pretty big liquidity hole. Now I think it's over two billion. Is that right? I think that that regarding the cash, I think that that's absolutely right. I think that caught a lot of people off guard when the company came out and said that they had to raise two billion. Um, I think that the first question that I got asked from a lot of subscribers is it was simply where's the cash? You know, I mean, they reported three billion in money, so. 
I think that it was very shocking for people that the, the company came out and said they had to raise $2 billion. I think that uh, part of what's going on is at the, the OPCO level, um, you're starting to see some of the credit insurers push back and some of the revolving facilities, they're not, they don't have access. And so there's there's definitely liquidity issues at the, or there were, um, I should say, liquidity issues at the OPCO level. The company has since come out and said that some of those liquidity issues have been stemmed since there's been new facilities facilities raised at some of those opcos but nevertheless it seems like there is still um, a question as to what the liquidity situation is especially at the parent and the most troubling thing is we still to this day don't know exactly how much or, or even have an idea of how much cash is on the balance sheet so that is something that will will, will absolutely need to be cleared up going forward and you say that some of the opcos are actually raising cash themselves or trying to uh, come up with some new financing. So when you think about Steinhoff, it's, it's actually a, a group of a number of different operating companies. This is, of course, the, the Europe business where you know, people suspect the, the fraud is. But uh, you know, here in the U.S., you have Mattress Firm and then a lot of other entities throughout the world. Can you just talk about what are some of those entities doing? And then I want to actually bridge this to um, some of the bonds here particularly the notes where you're seeing a lot of the big headlines of the big investment funds getting into some of those convertible notes. Where do those notes sit and how do they relate to these different operating company entities that are now trying to just raise cash on their own? Yeah, so I think the way that, and and that's a, that's an interesting point to bring up on the various steps the opcos are taking. You've seen Mattress Firm, Pepcor Europe, Mattress Firm and Pepcor Europe have both uh, raised financing, and then the French retailer Conferama has also raised financing as well. So the opcos are are doing what they can to stay afloat. And if you look at some of the press releases, it seems like they're sort of distancing themselves from the parent in terms of sort of the way to think about value. I think that there is. Is like as you pointed out, the Europe business, the U.S. business, and the Africa business, and value from those businesses flows essentially up to the parent. The Steinhoff Europe German notes, so the straight bonds, they were issued out of, out of Steinhoff Europe and sit a bit closer to the European retail assets than the convertible bonds, which were issued out of Steinhoff Finance. However, there is an argument being made out there that the Steinhoff Finance bonds benefit from value flowing out of a, a propco called Hemisphere because Steinhoff Finance owns Hemisphere. And so there's that dynamic. The other dynamic is that both Steinhoff Europe and Steinhoff Finance have claims against Steinhoff International, the parent co. And as I said, value is basically flowing up from all of the various businesses around the globe to the parent. And so depending on how much debt sits at the US entity or the African entity, you could see value flow up from those as well. Um, And depending on how this all shakes out, Steinhoff Finance convert holders and Steinhoff Europe bondholders could benefit from that equity. Thanks. I want to move on to to the next company, Seadrill, but I'm going to um, let everybody know that you did record a separate podcast where um, you just talk about Steinhoff and go into uh, the situation a lot deeper. So I encourage everybody uh, to listen to that, which is on our uh, podcast page. The next situation I want to talk about is Seadrill. It's a large offshore drilling contractor. The company had $8.7 billion in debt when it filed for bankruptcy in September of last year. It also filed with a restructuring plan in hand. The plan was supported at the time by an overwhelming majority of bank lenders and 40% of bondholders. 
plan also contemplated injecting over a billion of new money, which was backed in part by Centerbridge, plus an investment group that was led by the company's founder, John Fredrickson, through his investment vehicle, Hemin. So a major part of the plan is that the maturity on the pre-petition bank debt would be extended and the new money that would be injected backed by Centerbridge and, and Fredrickson would be exchanged in part for equity of the reorganized company. So the first thing that I found pretty interesting here is Fredrickson's involvement in the plan itself. It's unique because the debt here is impaired and the equity that Fredrickson own uh, is having a pretty large part in this bankruptcy. So Kyle, what, what, is, what is unique about this situation that Fredrickson is actually staying so involved? So I think what's what's unique about this this situation um, is that, as you mentioned, Hemin is is involved. Fredrickson is is definitely uh, very active, and I think that the reason, or one reason, that he is allowed to to stay involved here is that he does he, his presence does bring a certain benefit to Cedril, and that is he has a lot of relationships not only within Norway but just within the offshore network, and so he brings that knowledge and that then that know how to the company on the other hand you know there there are arguments over whether or not uh, equity should get 2% and so i think that there is some negotiating room there there's another plan actually that it seems like it's been proposed, uh, maybe not officially yet, but uh, you know we have it reorg reported on on a new entrant here. What we do know is uh, that group has funded a deposit of 10% of the plan that they want to put in. Company has also adjourned the disclosure statement hearing a number of times as well, indicating that there could be discussions going on. Um, what do we know right now about this second plan? Actually, the company filed an update on Friday disclosing the presence of two bidders. So you have one group of bondholders that's represented by Strook and Rothschild, and then another bid from Barclays Bank, which the company says is a significant bondholder. Each of those bidders has submitted 10% uh, deposits. However, as of now, we've only reported details on one of those plans, which I'll refer to as the second plan for now. I guess the primary feature of the second plan is that the the second plan proposes that the new secured notes that are being uh, invested in by outside investors and Hemin Holdings, those notes under the the alternative plan will be the the bondholders, the unsecured bondholders at Cedril and North Atlantic will have equal access to invest in those new notes, and they will be offered rights to the new equity pro rata to their existing bondholdings. So that's the that's the biggest feature, is that there's just equal access for everyone. The other sort of secondary points are you have no recovery for the equity, whereas the equity is getting 2% under the current plan. And then you have the primary structuring fee, which are fees that are going to Hemin and some of the other outside investors, and those fees are going to be, or proposed to be lowered. Okay, so we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye out uh, for that and which plan emerges as, as victorious here. Um, now, I want to look at what the company might look like post-emergence. Uh, the company, as part of the disclosure statement, has put out uh, some projections, and um, the plan contemplates extending maturities on the bank debt. The debtor's projections show $7.5 billion of interest-bearing debt at exit. The projections, though, say $550 million in EBITDA, which will result in a significant amount of leverage coming out of bankruptcy. Now, the projections do show almost the doubling of EBITDA to about a billion uh, in 2019. So, one, 
you know, is that sort of healthy? How much can we, we rely on that growth in EBITDA from 18 to 19? And, and really, what is, what's actually driving uh, that, that increase? I think that's the key question. I mean, when I've talked about Cedril to an investor, the, the, the one thing that he asked me is, fine, but when am I getting paid? And I think that that's, that's the crux of the situation. When is the recovery going to take place? And I think that that's what the company is essentially saying. We can come out with eight times of leverage in 2019, but we expect cash to ramp up between, say, 2019 and 2022. And I think that whether or not that happens, to be honest, is really anyone's guess. I think that you've seen um, some offshore companies come out and continually push back their projections as to when they think cash is actually going to ramp up. So I think that it's a it's a it's a really hard game to play. But you know, in terms of what what what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, it's really just a wait and see for now. And we will see. Thanks, Kyle. So let's jump over to the next topic we wanted to discuss, which is Venezuela. Not a company, obviously, uh, but a country instead, but certainly one that's gotten a lot of attention from investors. Uh, So first, I guess, if you could could describe the situation, what's actually there from a a debt perspective. Uh, The two main entities uh, that people know are the Venezuelan government itself and then uh, the oil company, uh, PDVSA. How do the two interact? And I think a lot of people want to know, too, uh, you know, where's the oil? So I think that is that is the million dollar or probably more than a million dollar question really where is the oil and I think that in terms of how the the Venezuela and and PDVSA sort of buckets interact I think that's really what what's driving a lot of the the trading and the situation I mean you've got around um, very roughly 44 billion of, of sovereign debt and uh, 30 billion of, of PDVSA debt so very large uh, capital structures and the the PDVSA debt arguably sits closer to uh, the oil assets, given that PDVSA is uh, both an upstream and midstream company, whereas the Venezuela debt is just sovereign debt. Now, within that, though, there are a lot of wrinkles. For example, there is a potential argument out there that PDVSA is an alter ego of Venezuela, and therefore Venezuela bondholders have claims against PDVSA. There are arguments or, or there are concerns that Venezuela could set up its own equivalent to Chapter 11 and restructure PDVSA under its own laws, which would certainly uh, not be good for for PDVSA bondholders. And so, there's a lot of different uh, opinions being expressed and a lot of different ways to express those opinions throughout the capital structure. But I think at a very high level, the bet or the investment is on the the oil that that Venezuela has. And at a very high level, the PDVSA bonds are, are closer to that oil than the Venezuela bonds. Snata, there's not a full-out restructuring yet. However, certain of the PDVSA bonds, or at least one of the bonds, is not current on their interest, and there's actually an ISDA determination uh, as such as well. So what power, if any, do bondholders have here to accelerate if that's what they want to do or start a full-out restructuring uh, with the government if that's also what they wish to do? 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I mean, there has been an event of default notice. It was declared on uh, December 21st on the 6% 2026 bonds. And the notice does stress that the bondholders can declare the principal due they, so they can accelerate. Now, whether or not they will, I think, is, is, is another question, or whether or not they will in the near term is another question. You know, I think that they can declare the principal due, um, but I don't think that PDVSA is necessarily going to react to that, commencing an involuntary, uh, you know, I need to be careful here in terms of what I say, but I think commencing an involuntary could be probably pretty tough. And so I think that it's just a very thorny situation. And I think that that's why you haven't seen much. Um, I'm sure that at the very least, the PETA VESA 2026 is, but probably bondholders across the capital structure, at least informally or behind the scenes, have been talking and sort of evaluating their options. But I think that it's a very daunting task. You know, people are saying that this restructuring is orders of magnitude more complicated than Argentina, which was, as we all know, was was extremely complicated. And so, I think that before bondholders accelerate and before any sort of action is taken, I think that it's really again just a wait and see moment. Also, you have the possibility, and this has happened in the past, that the coupon payments that are owed could come trickling in to some bank accounts. I've heard that the sanctions sort of complicate the timing on the coupon payments. And so, there could be a wait and see there as well. Maybe bondholders are saying, well, we're not going to accelerate yet. Let's see whether or not we get our coupons. That's another element that's playing in. And then also you've got potential elections that could take place. And so there's just a lot of uncertainty here. Great. So thank you for that that overview. Um, now, you're going to be doing a, a full, deeper podcast uh, on Venezuela, which uh, you'll touch on these issues, but definitely go go a lot deeper. So be sure, everybody, to to listen to that. Uh, it will be up on, on our page uh, soon. So, Kyle, thank you very much. Uh, this is a, a great trip around the world and look forward to, uh, to doing this uh, the, the next time. Uh, for everybody out there, this will be a, a regular feature on our podcast where we'll, um, we'll, we'll explore different situations uh, that people are looking at throughout the world. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody. That was The Week in Reorg. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes or SoundCloud. Catherine will be back next week. We hope you join us next time on Reorg's Weekly Podcast. <laughs>